0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We try our hand at SpyCraft this week with a set of espionage-themed stories covering everything from the latest troubles at Kaspersky to the strategic implications of responsible disclosure at the NSA. Plus, we've got a few more reasons to be careful about what you post on social media and an interesting discussion about the ethics of running a data breach search service. Plus, of course, we've got your fantastic feedback, a rockin' roundup, a whole bunch of tape coverage, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 340 for October 12, 2017. This episode is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and ix systems my name is wes and joining me this week is the man with more tapes than he knows what to do with that's right it's the one the only dan welcome to the show dan
1: hello thank you and yeah i have a lot of tapes <laughs> i'm sure i have a shelf full of tapes in the living room and i have a shelf full of tapes in the basement that's amazing you may mm. be my favorite how are you today? thank you thank welcome you. to the show i'm good i, I i'm especially pleased because A box arrived today that I wasn't expecting until tomorrow. Is that
0: right? Yes. It's an early present. Look at that.
1: Mmm. Look at that. New hardware. That's super exciting. Yep, yep, Yep. Congratulations. New new hardware to power those two screens. Remember we showed you the two screens last week? Yeah,
0: that's right.
1: Okay. Um, so turn, you... Turns out my 2013 MacBook Pro will not, sorry, MacBook Air will not power two external monitors of this size. I see. So but to complete the should. setup,
0: you had to uh, step up to a to a new yes. model. Yes,
1: it, it's it's odd. Just getting one little thing tips the balance, and you got to.
0: It's a whole procedure now, right? Like, yeah, yes. You're... But yes. Congratulations, that's great. Anything else before that... we jump in? Hmm
1: it's nearly halloween it is and i'm trying really hard not to open up this bag full of oh my gosh
0: that's a lot of can- that's a lot of candy in there yeah well that's admirable self-control Yeah. Uh,
1: so th- yeah that's the yeah. only other new thing nothing tech related so
0: if in between scenes today you hear dan rooting around you hear plastic wrappers that's what's happening Yeah, exactly. That sound. Uh, Beautiful. Okay. Well, uh, I guess let's start the show then. Uh, Because we like to do things difficult here, here at the TechSnap program, we're starting with some ethics this morning, in particular, the ethics of running a data breach search
1: service. We're we're looking at Troy Hunt's uh, blog here. And Troy has been running a service for a while called Have I Been Pwned, H-I-B-P for short. Sorry, H-I-B-P for short. And I used that service before I knew it was Troy's service. Oh, okay. Interesting. What he's talking about here is sometimes people say, hey, listen, just just show us the data. Just, Just let us have a look at it. It's been out in the open. Why don't you just show us what's there? You know, do they have this password of mine or do they have that password of mine? And putting aside the issue that usually the passwords that, that get leaked are not the real passwords, but hashes of the passwords, he can't really tell you what password you have. He he might be able to show you the hash, but then you'd have to look that up <coughs> Excuse me, in a rainbow table or redo the hash or something to find out if it is your password. So... He may not directly have your password, but the, 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 that's getting into too much detail. Right. Yeah. Really right odd. So l- let's start off with this first paragraph. No matter how much anyone tries to sugarcoat it, a service like Have I Been Pwned, which deals with billions, that's not an exaggeration, billions of records with a B, hacked out of other people's systems, is always going to sit in a gray area. There are degrees, of course, at one end of the spectrum. You have the likes of Microsoft and Amazon using data breaches to better protect their customers' accounts. And you should should go read that link. At the other end, there's services like the now-defunct leaked source who happily sold our personal data, including Troy's, to anyone willing to pay a few bucks for it. Ugh. So, yeah, um, this data gets found, uh, it, it gets dumped mainly by people proving that, hey, I got this data. Right. Or it gets found accidentally because it's been left open. Uh, we, we, we've we heard of lots of instances of, was it Hadoop or Mongo? It was MongoDB that we talked about re- recently. Oh, yeah. Now, this isn't a slight on Mongo. It's a slight on the people that left the database publicly accessible with no password protection whatsoever. Just asking if you got a data, for data. If you, yeah. If you got a database, don't put it on the internet. Yeah, sure. Right. Put, put it on a box. that's on the internet, but don't let me. Yeah,
0: very few times is there a reason that my it, laptop. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, so. Back to his, his writing. As far as intent goes, H-I-B-P sits at the white end of the scale, as far to that extreme as I can possibly position it. What's he mean by white end? He's talking about white hats versus black hats. And white hats are hackers with uh, good intentions, and black hats are people trying to steal your information and do bad stuff. So it's it, it's really a black and white issue. Huh. It's one of those many things I do in the security blog space security space, alongside online training conferences in person, blah blah blah. All of these activities focus on how can you make security on the web better, increasing awareness, reducing the likelihood of a successful attack, and minimizing the damage if it happens. HIBP was always intended to amplify those result those efforts, and indeed it has helped me to do that enormously. So if you haven't already Go to com and type in your email address and see if it's been leaked. Chances are, it has been. I've gone back and looked at old uh, old email addresses that I have not used in years, and it's in there. And yeah, makes... my current email address is in there. So Same here. It, it, it's not an attempt to gather your email addresses. It's not an attempt to fearmonger it's just to demonstrate that data breaches are a common occurrence now and chances are yours has been included your 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 data has been included in it
0: it's kind of one thing you know to like think about it in the abstract like sure if you watch this program uh, or you're just savvy then you realize yeah okay well probably in the myriad i have how many accounts Attached to my email, and mm-hmm. all of these data breaches surely it's in there. But like, when you could go to this site, put it in, and they, you yep. know, it just pops up. Like, yes, definitely, yep. maybe that will finally be the stake that you know makes people change some of their practices.
1: And if you have a domain, you can search for email addresses under that domain. Oh, chances I did realize are, that. Nice. Chances are you will find email addresses that don't exist for that domain because sometimes they make them up, like sales at or something like that. That's that's right. what I found. So, the next thing that Troy (coughs) talks about is the accessibility of a publicly searchable system. The foremost question that comes up as it relates to privacy, why make the system publicly searchable? There are both human and technical reasons for this, and he wants to start with the technical. So, sorry, you know, he wants to start with the human, sorry. Returning an immediate answer to someone who literally asks the question, have I been honed? is enormously powerful. The immediacy of the response addresses a question that's clearly important to them at that very moment. And from a user experience perspective, you simply cannot beat it. So the value in this model has significantly contributed to the growth of the service. And as such, the awareness is raised, the the awareness it has raised. A great example is when you see someone take another person through the experience here, You just enter your email address and, whoa, the the penny suddenly drops that that data breaches are a serious thing and thus begins the discussion about password strength and reuse, multi-step verification, and other fundamental account management hygiene issues. So, I want to emphasize that bit. Password strength, not reusing those passwords, and 2 FA. So we say 2FA, uh, multi-step verification. Uh, for example, uh, people are familiar with Google authorization. Basically, it's a number on your phone uh, or on a little thumb, thumb drive-like device that you carry. Basically, that number appears. It, it, it's random, but it's also predictable. Um, why is it predictable? Because the person that gave you that number has that number and can run that number through the algorithm to deduce what the number is now. So it's a time-based series. Um, It's kind of hard to explain, but it's proven to work. So even if your credentials are stolen, they presumably do not have that authorization key. And that authorization key changes, and you can just have it on your phone and look at it and say, yep, there's a number, type it in. So basically, if you log in from a new device or you log in from a location that you've never logged into from before, you might get presented with two-factor authentication.
0: Right, anytime that it's, it's somewhat unusual. or uh...
1: Don't consider it inconvenient.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. It's not it, – That's that's – yeah exactly it's just that's just part and part, part part and parcel of what we the world we live in how we have to do it it's not a big deal um mm. it's gotten convenient enough by and large sure there are some issues but they're you know it's all being worked on it's all improving and if people the more people that use it uh that kind of inculcated into the culture really the better maybe that's something we can do a deep dive on in the future
1: yes that's a good idea so uh... There are some issues, though, associated with with privacy that he tries to deal with. So, he flags certain breaches as sensitive and and excludes them from publicly visible results, such as the Ashley Madison data hit. If you're not familiar with Ashley Madison, it was a website that basically connected married people with married people for affairs. And The only way to see if you're in that data breach or any other that poses a higher risk of disadvantaging someone is to receive an email to the searched address and click on a unique link. And he'll come back to why he doesn't do that for all searches in a moment. So, scrolling way down, he gets to the point of where he talks about email and email costs, so, basically, if he had to deal with 700,000 emails a month, that's 400 bucks. Wow. Okay. Now, thankfully, he says, uh, there is a service provider that provides his bandwidth for free, which is good because this is a very good service, but he couldn't afford to do it do it all on his own. Basically, um, it would be something like, Thousands of dollars a month in order to cover the amount of email that he would, if he, everything was done by email, it would be very expensive. So, and there's another thing, he doesn't want your email address. There are a number of different services out there which offer the ability to identify various places your data has been spread across the web. It's a similar deal to HIPB, insofar as you enter an email address to begin the search, but then promise to get back to you with results. Of course, during this time, they retain your address. How long do they retain it for? Well, anyway.
0: Yeah, that's a good question.
1: Now what's the next most important thing to go over here so He's still adamant about not sharing passwords attached to email addresses. He's, he's very strict on that. Mm-hmm. A perfect example where I don't see eye to eye with some folks is sharing passwords attached to email addresses. I've maintained that since day one, this poses many risks. And there's a link there you can read. And indeed, there are many logistical problems with actually doing this, not least of which is the increasing use of stronger hashing algorithms in the source data breach. Not everyone has the same tolerance to risk in this regard. I mentioned earlier how some especially shady services will, will provide your personal data to anyone willing to pay. Passwords, birth dates, sexualities, it's all up for grabs. Others will email either the full password or a masked portion of it, both of which significantly increase the risk. To the owner of that password, should that email be obtained by a nefarious party? So some people might say, yeah, but I've changed that password. doesn't matter. Don't hand out passwords.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. It just, uh, I, I appreciate his thoroughness on a lot of this. You can tell he, he's put a lot of thought into, into running the service, not just something like he threw up over the wall at all.
1: He, he, I, I like his ethical... Um, standards. Uh, the, the next paragraph I'm going to read is the no shady practices rule. As I said in the intro, there's no sugarcoating the fact that handling data breaches is always going to sit in a gray area. This makes it enormously important that every possible measure is taken to avoid any behavior whatsoever that could be, emphasis could be, construed as shady. Now, I want to emphasize that. It's not what you're doing It's what appears. Right, yeah, this is about appearances. And it's it's always optics. You may be behaving perfectly well, but if it looks shady, people are going to raise doubt.
0: Right, that's like one reason it's important important to have transparency in your operations, be clear Mm -hmm. about what you're doing, what your policies, what your ethical guidelines are. Mm
1: -hmm. It probably shouldn't surprise anyone, but this is not a broadly held belief amongst those dealing with this class of data. And I'm not going to go into the details there of the next paragraph. I just want to go go straight to a summary because we've been on this for a while already, and I think you're getting the idea yeah. of of what a true white hat hacker thinks about. being completely honest, it would have to be less than one in one thousand pieces of feedback. I get that are critical or even the least bit concerned about the HIBP model as it stands today. It's a very rare thing, and that may make you wonder why I even bothered writing this in the first place. But the truth is that it helped me get a few things straight in my own head, whilst also providing a reference point for those who do express genuine concern. HIBP remains a service that first and foremost serves to further ethical objectives. This primarily means raising awareness of the impact data breaches are having and helping those of us that have been stung by them to recover from that event. Even as I've built out commercial services for organizations that have requested them, you won't find a single reference to this on this site. There's no products or pricing, no upsell. No financial model for consumers, no withholding of information in an attempt to commercialize it, no shitty terms and conditions that you have to read before searching, and not even any advertising or sponsorship. All of this is simply because I don't want anything detracting from that original objective I've set forth. I'll close this out by saying that there will certainly, almost certainly be changes to this in the future. Indeed, it's constantly changed already. Sensitive breaches, rate limits, and the removal of the pastes listing are all examples of where I've stepped back, looked at the system, and thought this needs to be done better. Very often, that decision has come from community feedback, and I'd welcome more of that in the comments below. Thank you for reading. I like Troy Hunt.
0: Yeah, I do too. I think that's this this is really good work. Uh it definitely has a good you know, it's good for the security community. It's good to see an example of how this is done, and the service itself is just really valuable. So I'm glad I'm glad he's operating it even at the considerable expense and time and operational constraints that he has.
1: And I know that several times I said H I P B. It's H I B P Right. Have, Have I, I been, been pwned? pwned. Yeah. yeah.
0: Just correct that in your head. It's it's fine, everyone. Yep. Okay, uh, okay. so I guess that means it's time to move on, unless you have anything else to add about Troy Hunt and his marvelous mm. website.
1: Yeah, uh, take a few minutes, go and look and see if, if you or people you know have yeah. been involved in one of those breaches, and let them know.
0: Exactly. If you're the more security, tech-conscious person in your life, uh, some something easy you can do, maybe it will trigger a good conversation about security uh, among your friends and family.
1: We'll add a link to the show notes.
0: Exactly. All right. Well, if you're as impressed as we are with the efforts of Mr. Troy Hunt, and you want to run your own service, well, you probably need some serious hardware, and there's only one place to get it. That, my friends, is ixsystems.com. Head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. There, you'll find the definitive guide to buying hardware for open source software. Don't worry. It works with proprietary software, too, but ixsystems really sets themselves apart. They have years and years of experience through dot-com bubbles and bursts, running open-source software, running web services, running high-performance, high-storage, pretty much any configuration you can imagine, they've done it. They've got great industry partnerships with, with people like Intel and their incredible Intel processors with all of their vendors to make sure that the systems they build are bespoke, custom, ready for use burn and tested white glove service and configured exactly the way that you need so whether you just want to pick up a new FreeNAS mini you can get them right on amazon or order them direct from ix systems either way is a great way to go free Nest mini is a perfect use case if you just need you know some more storage at home you've been trying to get serious maybe this year you finally like okay well you know with all the natural disasters and other horrible events in this world I don't want to. I don't want to lose my data. I need to get serious. Pick up a FreeNAS mini or two. Maybe put one in a friend or a relative's house. Get set up some replication between them. It's a great way to do it. Or if you just need to have some local backups, you need a fast network share for your office or for your your home your home environment. A FreeNAS mini is perfect there too. Sure, you could definitely you could definitely use the open source FreeNAS software, which is great, maintained by X Systems. They do a ton of great work there. It's super useful and build your own system. That's one of the great things about it. But if you get the system right from iX, you know that it's configured, it's tested, they've got incredible top-notch hardware, they really expect the system to be easy to upgrade, uh, super reliable, you won't have problems, it's resilient, it's got a ton of great settings, it's ready to go, you just plug it in, turn it on, it'll be on your network, you won't have a problem, it's super simple and easy. Maybe you have bigger needs than that, though. Maybe, maybe you're looking at trying to upgrade the storage for your entire workplace or for a data center. Then start looking at the TrueNAS. This is like the enterprise-friendly model. And if that's not enough, there's also the TrueRack. Plus, custom servers of all sizes, shapes, makes iX has the knowledge to make sure that, you know, if you're not an expert on a particular bit of hardware or the compatibility between this processor chipset and the equivalent motherboard, or will this motherboard fit in this case, and I really need it to fit into this size rack with these power requirements, all of that, right? It's a, it can be very confusing, especially if you're just on some website trying to pick on a crappy web form. Now, give iX Systems a call. They have a team of super talented sales engineers ready and waiting to talk to you, to partner with you, and to make sure that you get the best experience possible even better than that ix systems is an awesome community member you'll see him at a ton of great conferences things like ohio linux fest euro Con, and their blog also has some server envy posts if you see one of those go check it out looks like they've just got a pretty new one here Ooh, look at that for you server isn't that beautiful I won't spoil it for you. Go check out their blog. It's definitely worth the wait. And before you do that, go to com slash techsnap to let them know you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program. I know I do. Thank you very much to Ix Systems. Okay, now that that's out of the way, what do you have next for us today?
1: The next thing reminds me of of spies and knowing what oh. you know, knowing when you knew you knew and not letting the other guys know that you know that they know.
0: Some espionage? Some game theory?
1: Yeah, slightly. Slightly. Yeah, game theory is an interesting idea. Um, this one talks about, is the NSA doing more harm than good in not disclosing as exploits? Now, to be fair, this is on foreignpolicy.com, and I'm not totally familiar with this website at all, but this was interesting i found this interesting mostly because it talked about stuff that it referenced uh historical things that i had heard of before and uh ethical dilemmas that i've seen brought up before as well so bear with me this will sound, sound like devil's advocate or i'm advocating for one side or the other but no it it's sometimes it's sometimes useful to know the background and the reasons why some decisions are made. And so hopefully this will help. The current debate surrounding the vulnerabilities equities process, VEP, the process by which the U.S. government decides whether or not to disclose newly discovered software vulnerabilities or keep them secret for possible use, is admittedly rather tedious. One side accuses NSA of exploit hoarding and insists the agency should disclose more discovered Excuse me, more discovered vulnerabilities in the interest of public safety. The other side counters that the government should retain a responsible amount of so-called zero days and that it discloses them when reasonable. Both sides, however, often talk about the obvious point that there will always be vulns the NSA needs to retain for national security reasons. Even those who encourage the NSA to prioritize defense over retention of vulnerabilities for offensive use should acknowledge that disclosure of a vuln makes us more secure only if it is either already in the hands of or independently discovered by an adversary." So, the, I think the key there is to keep in mind the offensive use. Yeah, so, they're not a, keeping it... Go ahead. No, no, no. Go on. So, they're not keeping it secret just to keep you exploited. They're keeping it secret to use it as an offensive weapon. It, they're using it uh, as part of spycraft or... Even just introducing malware into bad actors, yeah, right. for example, for example, that that's their point of view as to why they're they're keeping exploits secret, not not to harm people, but anyway, but keep in point, keep in mind as we go through this, the disclosure of vulnerability makes us more secure only if it is already in the hands of or independently discovered by an adversary. So if so if a zero day is unknown except by the NSA who is potentially harmed by it. That that that's what they're saying. Right. right so more difficult and far more interesting dilemmas arise when the NSA discovers an adversary's capability either because the advers- adversary stole the NSA's own tools or because the NSA has compromised the adversary's infrastructure. Okay. What what they just said is, if the NSA knows about a vuln and then finds out that someone else can exploit that vuln, what do they do? That, that's what they're getting at. So in these circumstances there are clear defensive advantages to disclosing the vuln so that it may be patched as there is no longer just a speculation as to whether someone else knows or might discover it. At the same time, however, the equities are more complex because disclosing the vuln would risk compromising separate NSA capabilities. What? Look, it'll become known. It'll become more obvious here in a second. Mm-hmm. This is known as the Coventry problem. Coventry referring to Coventry, England. Coventry was a city in Great Britain that suffered devastating bombing raids during World War II. The, the story, perhaps a uh, myth, goes that the British government knew about the impending attacks on Coventry, but to avoid compromising the wartime signals intelligence that the Allies obtained from intercepting and decrypting high-level German communications – Churchill allegedly ordered that nothing be done to protect the city. So w- what they're getting at here is that sometimes in espionage, you have compromised your adversary's uh, messages. But by acting on those messages, you may alert them to the fact that they've been compromised right. And they'll use a different method of communication. So you sort of have to be very careful about that. Right. So, even,
0: yeah, even, you know, disclosing that you've you found these yeah. things may indicate, like, what areas you're actively researching. Anyone using those may realize, okay, well, does that mean that I am potentially a target here? Uh, it may also... Uh, reveal, you know, capabilities? Do they have systems to crack things that we previously did not expect that they could? Uh, people may have considered themselves safe, allowing for easy access from the NSA, and mm-hmm. then would have mm-hmm. to step up their security measures.
1: Yep. If if you read war, w- World War II history, especially uh, around Britain and Germany, there are many examples of where there is information known but could not be acted upon without Risking the assets involved in obtaining that information. Um, you really have to decide carefully how you're going to proceed. Yeah. So, anyway. Prior to their tools being stolen in 2013, it was difficult to claim that the NSA was at all wrong to withhold the Windows exploits. These were the crown jewels for TAO the NSA's most elite hacking group, providing a way to walk through almost any important Windows network on the planet. Meanwhile, there was no evidence of any other actor that had the same or similar capability. Let us assume, okay, now we're going to start talking about the shadow brokerage theft, which is when uh, shadow brokers was a group that said, hey, listen, we've got all the stuff here. Look what the NSA have. Let's assume that the NSA was aware of the shadow brokers' theft. It might not have been, but if so, that's a separate and far larger problem, if they didn't know. If upon learning of the theft, the NSA disclosed the vulns to Microsoft, then it would risk alerting to shadow brokers that the NSA knew that the hackers had the tools. Yeah. So suppose there's someone inside shadow brokers leaking to the NSA, hey, we've got this stuff. Thus, disclosure would potentially compromise the sources and methods through which the NSA learned of the theft and the fact of what had been stolen. If the NSA detected the the theft through standard network monitoring of its own systems, then disclosure from Microsoft would not have posed much of an issue, as the agency's methods of detection on that front are inherently obvious but detection through less com- conventional means might implicate a significant capability that would be disrupted by notifying Microsoft and then the shadow brokers so if you're secretly watching some someone you can't let them know that you're watching them yet by not mo- Notifying Microsoft, the NSA's inaction enabled the shadow brokers to use those stolen tools against U.S. and global targets. It is hard to know which decision the NSA should have made in such a scenario defend U.S. targets and implicitly disclose our knowledge or to remain silent. It's not black and white. No, so that, it's not. Uh, and I'm not reading the entire article to you. I'm just skipping through it and giving you the highlights. You, You should really read the whole thing. But the final paragraph is, there is no clean line, but a lot of messy and complex scenarios. That makes this the far more interesting policy problem than the generic is disclosure good framing. Uncomfortable with the NSA keeping some nobus, nobody but us, exploits, it is much more awkward when the NSA knows of exploits in the hands of others that others don't know that the NSA knows. And just to be clear, I'm reading the article here. This is not necessarily my opinion. Uh, It's always the case of during espionage of of when you know something you can't necessarily act upon it it it, it's always a trade-off
0: yeah it's definitely a trade-off i think here i just like to make you know see i'm okay with the idea at least in theory like you know a lot of what this talks about i think is valid there are trade-offs there are a lot of security national security um and strategy considerations to be made i think as long as there there is like one some sort of high level mandate that that they should tr- try to err on the side of protecting, you know, protecting the public protect, be, having responsible disclosure when possible, and then some sort of review that can take place, even if that review mm-hmm. is not necessarily made entirely yeah. public, but that there's some sort of feedback that, yeah, we couldn't do it in all cases, but there was a good faith effort or there weren't like large clearing oversights.
1: Yeah. I would love to be in meetings where this is decided just, just to hear the arguments. But, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I definitely agree. Uh, it makes me think of movies. It definitely. Yeah. You can't do that. You can't do that. Yes, we can. No, you shouldn't do that. But we should.
0: It's interesting too, just because it's you know the in this the government the national security space. It's very different than the sort of considerations that we talk about a lot of times when we're just talking about um, you know private companies patching policies, responsible disclosure policies. There's certainly overlap, but there's a lot of there's a lot of unique constraints and considerations here.
1: And. Um, it's sort of different for for a, a security researcher uh, I, I think the ethics there are very straightforward and clear mind you if the NSA was providing a big bounty to security researchers yeah but but they do they hire they hire these people right yeah that's that is also true
0: hmm. it's interesting okay Well, with that, thank you very much. That's a fascinating story. I'm now going to be musing on that for the rest of the day, I'm pretty sure. But we don't have time for that here on the Text Time Program. No, no. We must jump over to our next sponsor today, which is our dear friends over at DigitalOcean. Head on over to DigitalOcean.com. There you can use our exciting promo code, SnapOcean. One word, SnapOcean. That'll get you a $10 credit. What can you do with that credit? Well, now they've introduced Spaces, a beautifully simple and scalable object storage service. Maybe you've used one of these object storage services at some of their competitors. My friends, this is totally different. Yeah, sure, it has an S3 compatible API. You can use it through DigitalOceans. Great, clean, super easy to use API, but they also have their patented super simple dashboard interface for spaces. So it's 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 really easy. Go sign up, get your $10 credit uh, with that promo code SNAPOcean, go create a space and then Sure. Okay. So you can set up automated things. You want to sync things to it. You want to use their APIs from a ton of the different uh, SDKs that exist for a ton of programming languages. You can do that. Or if you just have a browser and you want to upload some files to it, they have a great HTML5 compatible interface. Super clean. It's very easy to use. Just drag and drop files right into your browser. They get uploaded live in the space. You have, you know, scalable storage. You can serve them to a ton of people, however much you need. DigitalOcean has great bandwidth prices, so you won't you, you won't have a whole bunch of money flowing right out of your wallet if you do so. And and they make it super simple to share. It make it really easy to generate a uh, time-boxed link. So if you want to just have a link that's only good for an hour that you can share with people and know that that link will then disappear, done. Already taken care of. You don't have to install a separate service. DigitalOcean does that. Now, if you don't need a space or you just also want some servers to go along with that, oh yeah, that's DigitalOcean's bread and butter. VPSs you can spin up in under 55 seconds. A ton of great operating systems to choose from. Ubuntu, FreeBSD, Container, Linux, Debian, CentOS, Fedora pretty much everything you need they've got data centers all over the world they've got 40 gigabit e right to the hypervisor great transit great peering all SSD disks and a ton of other features things like monitoring load balancing high CPU droplets attachable block storage private networking for droplets in the same data center it doesn't get better than this and on top of all of that you've got digitalocean's commitment to just keeping keeping things simple easy to use you have all the configuration and flexibility that you need. And none of the bloat, none of the confusing, none of the horrible, giant, super huge, unparsable JSON blobs of competing services and a pricing page that makes it all simple. Jump over the pricing page. You don't have to go dig through weird docs or use external third-party calculators to try to figure out what you might be paying because they lay it out right there for you. They got monthly or hourly pricing. I like that one they suggested for you, $20 a month or $0.03 an hour. You get 2 gigs of memory, 2 CPUs, 40 gigs of SSD disks, and a whopping 3 terabytes of transfer. That's pretty much good enough for almost anything I'm going to do on a day-to-day personal basis. If you need to scale that up, you can upgrade the droplets. Super simple. Don't waste any time. Go start playing... Check out the latest Ubuntu 17.10. Go play with that on DigitalOcean. Go check out the latest FreeBSD release. If you're bored, if you want to start a project and you don't want to mess up your home computer, there's just endless reasons to go use DigitalOcean. So head on over to DigitalOcean.com. Check out their awesome community pages. They've got a ton of great documentations. And make sure you use our promo code, SNAPOcean. That'll get you a $10 credit. And let DigitalOcean know you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, so that was that. That that got me happy. This next story Mm -hmm. less happy. So we all know there's like problems with sharing too much information on Facebook. This one, this one's pretty bad.
1: Sometimes people. You you ever seen photographs of credit cards? Yes, I have. Yep. Uh, Sometimes people post. boarding passes. And boarding passes have some interesting information because, uh, as you'll see, it's not that difficult to get into your details. So, in this case, uh, the author is talking about a guy that he knows and that he had posted a photograph on Instagram just before their departure. So, he and his wife were the the f- f- photographer and his wife were, were going to Hong Kong to celebrate her birthday in May 2016. That's a great but they idea. Didn't, yeah, so I want to go. The, Hong Kong's a great place. <clears throat> Sorry, go on. But they didn't say for how long they'd be there, and he wanted to know. So he took the uh, booking code, which was uh, clear clearly evident within the f- photograph, And he went to British Airways because British Airways was there. So you go to the British Airways site and you say, log in, do your booking. And all you do is you type in the booking reference and the last name of the passenger, which should be hard enough to guess, but not when it's right there in an Instagram photo. So you look in there and you see that all this information is already entered, like all the data for your booking is complete. So they wanted to verify that it was the person in question trying to change the details. And so he he could have entered the passport number because he didn't have that or the date of birth. But the guy's date of birth was on his Facebook profile. So he entered that. So there's a lot of other places the guy says that your birthday is fairly public information. It's in tax ID or VAT. And a number of tradesmen and freelancers in there have that available. So he entered that in. And once he entered in that, he could see the guy's passport uh, expiration date. He could see who had issued the passport. The passport was already in the photo. Um, And the date of birth. It It was all right there. So there's the passport number. He could even change it. In the document if on the website, if you wanted to, and he said, "Cool, I can make the birthday celebration a bit longer because if it was wrong, you wouldn't be able to so anyway, right. but he didn't change anything uh, he reported all this to that guy, and he apologized because he blocked him from accessing the booking page when he tried to guess his wife's birthday. Whoops. He later googled the date of his wife's birthday and he got it and anyway uh, and so the guy who posted the photograph, took it in in good stead. And uh, then his next photograph, um, a little while later, didn't include that information. But it did include the fact that one person was seating in row 52K and the other one was sitting in 01D. And I'm just wondering which one of the two of them was in first class and which one was not. That's a good question. If it it was
0: her birthday, I hope
1: it it was her. Maybe it was, so. but a side note. So back to other things that he was talking about. So he went and started searching for boarding passes on Facebook, and he found one uh, of an Aztec code who wished to remain anonymous. But he was able to go through there and select forgotten password, enter the name, and the two security questions. And he was able to follow that because that was all also in his, uh, his Facebook profile. And favorite cold weather activity in the Alpine country was not golf. It was probably skiing, and he guessed that. And so the system recognized it was him. In fact, he could set up a new password for, for an account, for the account. Now, this happened in June 2016, and since then, United has had an additional step in which they require the customer to click a link which is emailed To them, in order to change their password, but so the guy basically finishes with just don't punish. uh, Sorry, just don't publish any pictures with codes. So if there's a um, a QR code or um, a booking number, don't put it out there where someone can see it. Why do people? publish photographs of their boarding passes anyway i mean i, I would think never it's, do that
0: it's like sort of uh like romantic you know it symbolizes you're like ah yes we've left look at this we're excited or we're yep. already going and you just don't you know if you don't put in a second thought i could definitely huh. see doing that um do, but especially if you're not do, handy with like a blur or smudge tool or or other similar things
1: I, I, have you ever flown when you had those tickets that had those red backings on them have you ever flown oh, with yeah. one of those yes i have you know the ones i mean mm-hmm. yeah I remember them uh, I also remember another odd thing um, the booking code used to refer to the equivalent of an inode number,
0: oh yeah, that's right,
1: like a block a disk block number that's what the booking code was
0: it was like a it was a relevant like pointer to a data structure yeah. or place like a,
1: yeah, it wasn't just a random number it was actually it actually helped you identify it on disks
0: that's so like that. that's so funny, not just an ID in a table somewhere huh
1: so. This is all about security. Users often publish, publish, I'm having trouble, users often publish data that they don't know what they mean because at first sight it's not possible to see the data or what the data is for. So don't even publish a photograph of the inside of your passport. Yeah. That's got stuff on it that even, it's machine readable. There's code at the bottom.
0: If you wouldn't Uh, wouldn't be comfortable handing it to a stranger, don't post a picture of it
1: on the internet. Yeah. Yeah, Um, just be careful. Uh, Someone says you can just hide the data with a black rectangle or any other favorite shape, but just blurring them is not enough because it's been shown that you can undo that feature. Uh, Oh yeah, when creating answers for security, security questions, you do not have to tell the truth. Nobody's gonna be checking your answers. The reason the security questions are there is to make it easy for you to remember. But because you're using a password manager, you can make the answers anything you want and make them different for every website. Like a lot of websites ask for your mother's maiden name. Lie on every single one and make it a different name. Make it some random character, set of characters. Like type in there whatever you want and make it different on every single website. Do not answer the questions truthfully for security questions put any answer in there you want
0: yeah you just need to be able to remember it or you know have it have it stored mm-hmm. securely somewhere else in a, yep. in a password manager yep. or similar because uh, mm-hmm. otherwise there's so much more information probably about you that's publicly available than you ever would realize because unless you spend a lot of time trying to hack yourself or research yourself you're not gonna you're not just gonna run across it but for people who know what they're doing there's a lot of stuff that that's easy to find
1: and here's another idea. Um, make up a random user ID. Uh, y- your password manager has a randomizer for passwords. Copy and paste that as your user ID. Randomize both your user ID and your password.
0: Oh, there you go. Yeah, I've actually, I, I have done that before. You will, as with passwords, sometimes run into annoying websites that have um artificial constraints mm-hmm. on what those can be um but yeah you know the more the more random is the more you, hard you are to distinguish from from the chaos and from everyone else usually the better
1: mm-hmm. yes now i think the idea of security questions was created at a time when password managers are not very popular yes. and so it was it was designed to be something that you could easily remember and hardly ever get wrong.
0: Exactly right. We know you're going to forget your yep. password, so here's a yep. system that you just, with by yourself, without yep. any other stuff, you can get back into your account.
1: And I much prefer systems that allow you to write your own oh, security yeah, very questions. much So definitely, um, you know, why not? What, what, what was the who lived at the third house down the street on the left-hand side when you were six years old?
0: There you go. Yeah. See, that would be maybe, maybe it's possible to go find that out from public records, but it's a whole no. order of magnitude, no. 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 uh, you know, no. above and beyond. So, yeah, these are some, these are some great tips. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, you're welcome. Stay safe out there. Everyone. We've been talking a lot about ways to do that. Uh, earlier we mentioned two factor authentication for a lot of times like that. Mm-hmm. You'll need a cell phone. So maybe, maybe you're frustrated with your current provider, Maybe you're looking for a new phone or just to try to save some money. Boy, I have the, I have a tip for you. Dan's just trying to keep you safe. I'm going to try to save you some money. Head on over to Ting.com, techsnap.ting.com. There you'll find a smarter way to do mobile. It, it really is mobile that makes sense. Why is it mobile that makes sense? Because, okay, so to start, there's no early termination fees. There's no contracts. You don't have to try to guess how much data you might use. Now, Ting has a different model, and it's really the way that cell phone service should have been done for the for the whole time uh thankfully ting is doing it now and you can you can get it in your area almost certainly and that's pay for what you use yeah it's so simple right it almost sounds crazy pay for what you use go to com. go over to the rates page and you'll see exactly what i'm talking about and just how simple ting keeps things so to start out one line it's just six dollars a month then you pay for how many messages how many minutes and how much data? If you're like me, well, I don't really use minutes. I uh, mostly have Wi-Fi calling or, or uh, you know, using using data or Wi-Fi for that. I also don't really use text messages. I use things like like Signal uh, or other alternative messaging systems that, again, use data. So, uh, sure, I do use some data, but I've got Wi-Fi at work. I've got Wi-Fi at home. And, you know, there's Wi-Fi on, on buses and public spaces. It's really all over the place. So, I think you'll find, if you're at all Wi-Fi sa- savvy, Ting is a great bet. So, let's say you just use a gig of data. Okay, pretty reasonable. Your monthly bill, before some taxes and fees that Ting really can't do anything about and might vary in your area, your bill would be $22 a month. It's like a it's like a nice meal out and you get cell phone service. You got pay for what you use. If you need more data, there's no overage charges. You just pay for what you've used. Tethering is included. Also a bunch of other things like three-way calling, all the standard features, voicemail, et cetera. But for me, not having to feel like like a weird criminal or doing doing something wrong or having to call up and pay an extra fee and get an extra second special magic bucket of tethering data, when really we all know it's just data. It goes over the same LTE modem. It goes over the same networks. It's just data. At Ting, it makes it super simple. So if you're like a remote worker or other, other person that you, know, you really need to know that if you're on the road, emergency happens, you can tether your laptop, get online, log into that system, troubleshoot, ting is great for that they have both cdma and gsm as well so if one you're in an area one doesn't work pop out your other sim card switch it in there you go um they also support a whole range of phones because they have both gsm and cdma pretty much whatever phone you might find it's probably going to work on the ting network they have an i m e i checker so that makes it super simple and They've got super helpful, real humans. If you give them a call, you'll talk to one. They will, I'm almost sure, solve any problems you might run into. They certainly have for me. They've got an incredible web dashboard, all the latest phones that you might want, and the best mobile model around. Pay for what you use. Head on over to techsnap.ting.com. You'll get a $25 service credit. It'll probably pay for more than your first month's bill. Or you can put that towards a shiny new phone on the Ting network. These phones are unlocked. They're not Ting's not trying to get in the way. They're not trying to become the next big media player. They're not trying to put super cookies on all your traffic. That's just not their game. They want to sell you simple, secure, straightforward cell phone service, and that's what they're great at. Thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Alrighty. Thank you to Ting. Thank you everyone for watching us here today on the TechSnap program. So what do you have next for us today? This one's kind of interesting.
1: The the next The next one is back onto the spy. Yeah, we've got a theme uh, theme. today. Yeah. Um, This one revolves around a spy spying on spies being caught by the spies they were spying on. And in this case, uh, it led to someone discovering that a trusted entity may be involved in some nasty stuff, or a previously trusted entity. Listeners will recall that a while back we talked about the U.S. government uh, ordering all federal executive branch agencies to stop using Kaspersky, Kaspersky products, giving agencies 90 days to remove the software. That was back on September 13th, just under a month ago. Um At that time, they cited the, quote, information security risks, unquote, presented by Kaspersky and said the company's antivirus and other software provide broad access to files and can be exploited by malicious actors to compromise federal computer systems. Well, what made them act upon that? What made them think about that? Well, it all stems back to an Israeli 2014 intrusion into Kaspersky's corporate systems. Now, why would you go into Kaspersky? Well, that'll become clear. Kaspersky Lab did not discover the Israeli intrusion into its systems until mid-2015. So I'm guessing that was six to 18 months after it occurred, so right. poss- most likely about a year, when a Kaspersky engineer testing a new detection tool noticed unusual activity in the company's network. The company investigated and detailed its findings in a June 2015 report. There's a link in this article. The report did not name Israeli Israel as the intruder, but noted that the breach Bore striking similarities to a previous attack known as doku which or doku, doku, which researchers had attributed to the same nation states responsible for the infamous Stuxnet cyber weapon and really, if you 've never heard of Stuxnet, go and read up on that. It is astounding what was accomplished and how it was accomplished. You got to have a certain amount of admiration for the cleverty involved in that.
0: That is for sure. So, you can also find uh, coverage of that on the previous incarnation of this year TechSnip yes, program. So I think that's that where well. I
1: first heard about
0: it. I believe same, same, for me.
1: Stuxnet was a joint American-Israeli operation that successfully infiltrated Iran's nuclear facility and used malicious code to destroy a fifth of Iran's uranium centrifuges in 2010. It was clever. It it was clever. But anyway, now I've just been reading from about the middle of this article. I'm going to jump back up to the top because this is much that background helps you follow what I'm about to say. It was a case of spies watching spies watching spies. Israeli intelligence officers looked on in real time as Russian government hackers searched computers around the world for the code names of American intelligence programs. What gave the Russian hacking detected more than two years ago such global reach was its improvised search tool, antivirus software made by Russian company Kaskir. Kaspersky lab that is used by 400 million people worldwide, including by officials at some two dozen government agencies or soon not to be used. Mm -hmm. Right. So the Russian operation described by multiple people who've been briefed on the matter is known to have stolen classified documents from a national security agency employee who had improperly stored them on his home computer upon which Kaspersky's antivirus software was installed, what additional American secrets the Russian hackers may have gleaned from multiple agencies by turning the Kaspersky software into a sort of Google search for sensitive information Uh is not publicly known. Yikes. But when you think about it, I I used to use antivirus scanning stuff, and that's what it does. It reads your entire... Yeah,
0: hard drive it usually has you know super user type level of permissions uh, it can do all kinds of stuff it's running all the time it usually has hooks into all kinds of system services depending especially on in the windows side mm-hmm. of things it's it, it sends data back yeah exactly it's ready it's ripe and ready for abuse especially for you know a lot of proprietary ones where you don't yep. you have a hard way of knowing exactly what's even going on and
1: what came first the idea to do this or the virus scanning stuff. Right. Like, did they start off to do this and built up a popular and well respected uh, antivirus company, security company, or what? So, like most security software, Kaspersky's Labs products require access to everything stored on a computer in order to scour it for viruses or other dangers. And then it sends information away. So the NSA and the White House declined to comment for this article. The Israeli embassy declined to comment, and the Russian embassy did not respond to requests for comment. The Wall Street Journal reported last week that Russian hackers had stolen classified NSA materials from a contractor using the Kaspersky software on his home computer. But the role of Israeli intelligence in uncovering that breach and the Russian hackers' use of Kaspersky software in the broader search for American secrets have not previously been disclosed. We're reading a New York Times article here. And I urge everyone to go to the show notes and read this entire article. It is Very interesting. You're only getting the highlights here. That's right. So, a former NSA operator and co-founder of Area 1 Security says, antivirus is the ultimate backdoor. It provides consistent, reliable, and remote access can be used for any purpose, from launching a destructive attack to conducting espionage on thousands or even millions of users. Hmm. I never thought of antivirus software as being an attack vector. So, uh, scrolling down to the end, you know, talking about what came first, uh, it seems more likely that Kaspersky was doing good until. But experts on Russia say that under uh, Putin, who is a former KBG officer, KGB officer there I am uh, mixing up letters again
0: Yes, it's hard today
1: businesses which were asked for assistance by Russian spy agencies may may have felt that they had no choice but to give it now I'm paraphrasing what the article says here just to make it clear to refuse might well invite hostile action from the government against the business or its leaders that's a quote Mr. Kaspersky, who attended an intelligence institute and served in Russia's Minister of Defense, would have few illusions about the cost of refusing a criminal request. So this is all speculation. Uh, we did cover, I think, how Russia has an intelligence institute and then trains people up and sends them out. Or, yes, I'm sure that was a Russian article. Um. So, yeah. Uh Anyone still using Kaspersky? I hope that. I don't think so.
0: Yeah, I hope. I, I certainly hope not. After all of this, uh, yikes! And yeah, and yeah, it's such like um, you know people people don't really think about it. It's, you just think, oh, yep, well, I need I need some antivirus, need antivirus to protect virus. me from all those dangerous uh, virus makers and hackers out there.
1: I'm trying to think of who I use. I know in the past I've used McAfee. I can't think of any others. Uh, AVG, AGV. Yeah, that's that's
0: a that's a popular one. Um Clam A V for, yes. for Linux. Uh, maybe Guess also what? works on FreeBSD, I don't
1: know. Guess what? Hmm. Work does Clam A V. Oh, okay. There you go.
0: Interesting. Uh maybe maybe some maybe our viewers have some thoughts, feedbacks, or uh, horror stories from antivirus use in no. their history. I would love to hear about that.
1: Yeah, that that said, ClamAV is open source. Yes. Yeah. Good clarification, definitely.
0: Hmm. Okay, so uh, we'll all just go install Kaspersky right now, and then, yikes.
1: Leave it at that. We're done. Yeah.
0: Okay, uh, did you have anything else you want to talk, uh, talk about here, or uh, do we have one yeah. more story as well?
1: Uh, no, I think we're done on there, but just really, um, uh, Go and read the original article. There's also a link in the show notes to the Washington Post one. Um, We only covered the highlights and it may sound very biased in what we're saying, but read, read the full details because it is very interesting.
0: And that brings us to the feedback segment, the time in the show where we get to hear from you, our wonderful audience. First up, we've got a letter about CERN using tapes. Yes. Sounds like yes. CERN is still using tapes uh, and refresh data there about every 10 years. Here's a video in Polish, but uh, some of the interviews are in English about data storage in CERN. Uh, we've got a couple of links here to some YouTube videos that got some... Some, some sexy tape action look at those going labels Woo! Uh, so um, totally worth checking out
1: the, if you don't know who CERN is CERN is the European organization for nuclear research known as CERN and basically they're the one that runs that huge particle accelerator that that's all underground and it's just huge 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 it's the one that found the the big bigs. Higgs boson Thank you. Higgs boson particle. I'm glad you know the words that I'm trying to say.
0: I should. I do have a a physics degree, so so I would be embarrassed if I didn't. You have a
1: physics degree? I do. Holy crap, uh, physics was, was one of my favorite know. high school subjects.
0: Yeah, it's certainly fascinating, always fun. Uh, and right. CERN does awesome work, so it's cool to see. And it would make sense because they have incredible amounts of data from all that cool science that they're doing, so yeah. you really need huge amounts of storage, and it would be a terrible loss to lose a lot of that, so definitely important.
1: And f- fair warning, we're talking about tapes first in the feedback, and tapes will be lost in the feedback as, w- as well. Why that's the order in which the messages arrived we, we I usually do these messages in, in, in arrival order
0: I'm not sure of but the anyway, name of yep. uh, the person who submitted this but it's definitely appreciated thank you for oh. the great links
1: yeah I seem to have messed that up somehow that's I think all. I think maybe they just had anyway oh.
0: yes anyway it's much appreciated thank you very much really all the feedback <laughs> is. Okay, so moving right on, Christopher writes to us. Yeah. About being new to free BSD. Hello, guys. I've been using Linux for a while, but I've always been intrigued by the BSD community. And as a result, I've always meant to try it out more. Here's the question uh, maybe a little BSD specific, but yeah, I'm not sure. Either way, uh, I enjoy the show that you guys do every week. Thank you for doing it. Uh, always get something out of it. Hey, we're very glad to be here. Thank you for watching. So, it uh, sounds like Christopher's installed the virtual machine the other day with FreeBSD and started messing around. What I was wondering about at the moment was, what is the best way to run some simple startup scripts? Like if I wrote my own little backup routine, for instance. Normally, I would use SystemD on the Linux side of things to start services, check their logs, etc. I've been, I've been reading about rc.d in the FreeBSD documentation, but I find myself with more questions than I can find answers. Because I'm starting from absolute scratch for example as long as i include all the requirements in rc.descript can i do almost whatever i want to do i mean i'm sure i could i should obviously keep it simple as possible i'm kind of looking for some good examples and best practices thank you very much for your help christopher well being uh being the bsd guy of the two of us i'm going to turn this right over to you
1: okay uh first question Like, if I wrote my own little backup routine, for instance, well, if you want to run stuff periodically, read Man Periodic, um, because that's very useful for things that that you can just install and enable or disable with an entry in in rc.conf. Keep in mind that cron jobs usually run concurrently. You can also use cron jobs. The difference between cron jobs and periodic is that Periodic has a list of jobs to run, and it'll run them sequentially. So when the when it finish finishes with the first one, it'll start the second one. Now, that may be what you intend; it may not be, but keep that in mind. Um, periodic is also very good for installing something on a system. So you install it as part of the port, and it's not in a cron tab somewhere. It's run. Um, by the system itself, and you can make it run as a particular user or something like that. It's very useful. And some of the things that I'm doing with fresh ports, I think maybe I'll move over to periodic or maybe they need to be run concurrently. I'll see. I've been doing a lot of porting lately for fresh ports. Um, Now, the next question, as long as I include all the requirements in an rc.d script... Can I do almost anything I want in there? Yes, you can. Uh, RC.D is very, very clever. And I had happened to post just the previous day, tweet just the previous day <laughs> about this. Um, I've included in the show notes link links to practical RC.D scripting in BSD, which is a document on the FreeBSD uh, website. Uh, also read man manrc.subber. On uh, man periodic, and also look at daemon tools, which is something I use on fresh ports. Um, sometimes you just want a little script that's going to be started and stopped. Uh, and the advantage of daemon tools is is if the script for some reason falls over, it starts it again. So um, maybe your script runs just fine for most of the time, but under certain circumstances it falls over. Well, It'll just be started up again by this app. Uh, that's not always feasible for things like Apache or other well-known services, but I find it just fine for what I do on FreshPorts.
0: Yeah, definitely. Another one I've used is uh, Supervisor D, which is a, a Python service manager that, that has some similar similar features.
1: Interesting that Daemon Tools also uses the term Supervisor. It, it has like SVC, like oh, yeah, SV, right. it, it calls it SVC. Scan is the app that you start, and SVC is a controller, and SV Stat right. tells you information about about it. It it is a pretty cool thing. It's written by the same guy that did DJ DNS or something. Oh yeah, okay, nice. It, it, it's very very odd that um, it, it, I always find it interesting when a well known tool that you wrote, the author. Also wrote something else that you know, ver, know um, very well.
0: Yeah, like right. uh, no, it's always appreciate. You're like, oh, okay, these people are prolific. They do a lot of good work, and if you like the quality of one project, it might be a good sign that some of their other work is, you know, up to that
1: level. Mm-hmm. Okay, so and oh no, go on. Yep, nope, nope. That's it. I was just gonna blather about Daemon Tools a bit more, but I've already done that. <laughs>
0: Check that box. Okay, so I guess we'll move along right in the feedback here. Uh, next up, a letter from Wilmer. Also, I guess I should say before that, uh, just Christopher, good luck. Uh, I hope you have a great time with FreeBSD. It's obviously a wonderful operating system. And uh, if you do, you know, if you find that helpful, let, let Dan and I know for more feedback for the show. Hit us up on Twitter.
1: And if you want to read uh, more about uh, SystemD, there's a great M.W. Lucas book on System D. You should read that.
0: Oh, you devil. Such a troll. All right, now we're really moving on to a letter from our friend Wilmer uh, with a problem about Steam reporting zero free disk space on ZFS. Hello, Wes and Dan. Hello, Wilmer. I finally decided to try ZFS on my Arch Linux machine since I was finally able to save up for a 4 terabyte disk. I looked at the FreeBSD handbook, which informed me that I'm able to use ZFS on a single disk and then convert it to ZFS mirrors when I get a new disk. I originally set the new Z build to be mounted on /mount/storage A, and shown that directory to my normal user so that I can access it. I'm able to move and save files to the directory without a problem. But when I went to set my Steam download directory to the disk, it's reported as having zero free space and zero space used, which is completely wrong since this is a brand new four terabyte disk with only a few music files on it. I originally thought that this was possibly due to a permissions error, so I, I changed the directory's group, etc. Um, none of that, none of that seemed to help. I then changed my mount point to under my home directory. That also didn't help. I looked online for similar issues, and I can't really find anything related to ZFS reporting zero space to Steam. Thank you in advance, and keep up the great work. Wilmer. Hey, Wilmer. Thank you very much for uh, writing to us. It's awesome that you've got uh, ZFS. I've... I've used ZFS on Arch Linux many times myself and usually have a great experience. Super useful, obviously, for for backing up, file integrity, just a wonderful file system all around. But there are occasionally things like this where, you know, it's not it's not the... I, I don't believe necessarily that it's the fault of the ZFS module or, or driver, um, but because it's sort of second class, even though ZFS on Linux is great, they do a lot of awesome work and it works very well, stable, production-ready now on Linux... It's still not always considered as a first-class file system, so not not all projects seem to work with it, especially if they are trying to do some sort of check. So it does look like Steam here is, is having a problem. I was able to... I have not been able to replicate this issue. Um, I may give it a try. I was going to rebuild a machine anyway uh, that that runs Steam. I don't have Steam installed on any of my Linux machines just at the moment due to some, you know, operating system changes in the works, but... Uh, I'll see if I can replicate it. But it does look like I was able to find a article over on their GitHub issues. Other people have had this problem too. There might be a couple workarounds. Let's see. Looks like it's an issue. Looking, oh, yeah. nope, wh- why
1: ahead. are you looking for that? There was an email that came in from Alan Jude just yesterday. Uh, he says, this might actually be be just bad math on Steam's part, although ZFS does play some tricks to make older tools like DF work. So it gives an example of, of this media downloads thing, which is has size 1.9 terabytes, used 809 gig, and available 1.1 terabytes. So it sets the size of the pool, the size of the file system, to be used plus free, So, as you write to other file systems in the same ZFS pool, the size of this file system will shrink. Right. Okay. So, this is the only way to handle the fact that all of the storage is shared in one pool. So one thing to try is to try to create a new data set with ZFS Create, say storage A Steam and set a quota on it, say one terabyte, and then try that. And maybe having the free space amount not be around four terabyte, the wraparound point for a Yeah, that uh, is a dangerous point variable
0: for, for file systems. We'll,
1: yeah, will cause it not to think there is no free space. So... it it, it's probably Steam thinking that there's no space, but there actually is space is, I think, what Alan is getting at. And he's suggesting that setting a quota may help. And
0: I think actually Alan is right on the money with this one, or at least really close. Uh, So I was able to find uh, Mm -hmm. over at Valve Software Steam for Linux, issue number 4982. It's still open. Um, People are having very similar problems. And it does look like down here at the bottom... Uh, some confirmations that setting a quota does seem to work. I've seen Yay. a couple other tricks people have maybe been successful doing some sim linking with some of the um, some of the Steam configuration files as well. Uh, but it looks like there's a, a working workaround. Steam is maybe aware of it, uh, so go check that out. I'll have it in the show notes. Let us know if that works. Hopefully so. And as always, thank you to the wonderful Mister Alan Jude for some uh, some pro tip explaining right there.
1: Hmm, that sounds good. And I'm glad you were able to talk about Arch Linux, because I can't. I about
0: that. <laughs> that's all right. It is my uh, well most most daily driver operating system, so I'm pretty familiar. Um, okay, well, that's great. Uh, good luck, Wilmer. I hope you get that. Uh, ZFS is obviously great. You want to play games. That all makes a ton of sense. So hopefully this is enough to get you over the hurdle. might not be perfect, but until Steam can get their math fixed, it might just work. Okay, so moving right along... Uh, we've got another another letter today from Lewis, this time about SSH reverse tunnels. Mm. Greetings, Stan and Wes. Long-time listener, Patreon contributor to the network. Love all the shows. Awesome. We are super glad to have you, Lewis. Thank you for writing to us. I have a question around SSH tunnels for secure RDP between Windows machines. I have a home on dynamic IP set by the ISP and then an office on a static IP, which I am the network administrator for. Hey, that's handy. I'm trying to set up a persistent SSH tunnel to allow me to RDP to my home from my office. I have an Ubuntu 16 machine at the office with port 22 pointed to at it through the firewall. I have set up a Raspberry Pi at home to establish the SSH tunnel from home. At the office, I have set up SSH config with gateway ports. Yes, I am connecting from the Raspberry Pi with the following. And here he's, here he's got a, a long command line using re, dash R for, for reverse port forwarding. Um, the tunnel's up from the console to the office. I can RDP to localhost 3388 and get prompted with the box at the home office. So just at localhost, from from the console at his, at, at, at his office, he's able to... to, to the, ah, there we go. Let me say that again. At the machine that he's actually making the SSH connection to On localhost there, he is able to RDP as normal. However, the gateway port's feature does not seem to be working. My expectation is any box on the LAN at the office could RDP to the Ubuntu box IP port 3388 and get routed through the tunnel. This, however, does not appear to be the case. The Ubuntu box is not allowing incoming connections on 3388. Do you have any ideas for me? I've read all over Stack Exchange and the like, and it seems there were some early bugs in SSH which might have caused this issue, but those were reported and fixed a long time ago. I can't imagine those issues persist today. Hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's kind of troublesome. Um, I imagine it's just a typo, but in your letter, I see you have SSH config. Um, I assume that should be SSHD config on a lot of systems uh, for, for the gateway ports option on the Ubuntu box um, so that that will allow outside connections the as usual the FreeBSD man page has a great uh, explanation of it gateway ports specifies whether remote ports or remote hosts are allowed to connect to ports forwarded for the client by default sshd binds remote port forwarding to the loopback address so if you do a remote port forward by default ssh will only yeah. listen on localhost with the gateway port options you can change this um, the default is no you can use yes to force remote port forwardings to bind to the wildcard address all the time, or you can use client specified, which um, which lets the client specify in the connection request to be either be localhost. I think it defaults to that still if you don't specify it. Or you can specify the wildcard address and have it listen there. If you look at the command uh, we've got here, it looks like they are specifying the wildcard address. Uh, so yep. make sure that the gateway ports is configured correctly and in the right config file on the right machine. I'm sure you've probably already done that, but just for everyone listening. Um, the other things I would do—it's just kind of weird—but what I would try is just kind of standard debugging tactics first. You know, increase mm-hmm. the verbosity on all your SSH demons and clients, um, mm-hmm. and then do some simple like. I would start with, you know, just just use netcat or something similar. Listen on the port uh, on your Ubuntu box and try to connect from another machine on the LAN, Make sure that there's no problems there. Uh, maybe do the same on the other side. Make sure that. If it's not RDP, if it's just a simple listening service in your home, can you connect both from localhost and then can you connect elsewhere? And uh, set up some watching, maybe maybe with uh, TCP Dumper, or Wireshark, or just standard tools like um, netstat or SS, and make sure that you actually see the SSHD daemon looking or listening on the wildcard address on the port that you think. Um, there's other some also some good tools if you look at like. Um, brendan greg's perfutils or the bcc collection they've got some um some handy tools where you can just monitor real time all the tcp connections that are getting made so that might be another way that you can monitor and see like are these actually hitting my box where is it failing does ssh actually see these connections and denying them is it listening on the right port at all Um, maybe then you can figure out where in the chain things are not connecting and then focus your debugging efforts right there what do you think dan
1: if this is a free BSC system, the first thing I'd run is sockstat minus four minus p three three eight nine. And that'll tell me what's listening. oh no, three 33- three eight eight. eight, eight yeah. Yes. And that'll tell me what's listening on that port. And you may find that it's only localhost. Um, but yeah, fr- first verify that it's listening on the right uh IP address, the expected IP address. And Netstat might be able to tell you that as well. Netstat minus NA, I think. And then just grep for 3388 and see what you find. Do that on the Office Ubuntu box. Because you do say that RDP localhost works, which means it's listening on 127.0001, but it doesn't tell you if it's listening on the IP address. Um, from the console at of the office, try the same command you're running that you expect others to run from elsewhere. In other words, RDP Ubuntu box. Uh, I also noticed you say SSH key at office Ubuntu box and then say RDP Ubuntu box. Maybe it's the same thing.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there's all kinds of tons of little things to make sure that if you've changed the config, the daemon was restarted or Um all those little pieces uh, maybe you can build up enough of the chain to actually figure out like where where exactly is this you know not meshing
1: yeah and use this at least as an exercise in in debugging tcp connections
0: yeah definitely it's 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 an excuse to play with some of the tool sets maybe learn them better if you're not already an expert really i mean really for anyone for anyone listening um pull out tcp dump look at wireshark whatever whatever uh helps you do it it's just a good Mm -hmm. excuse to use some awesome tooling and good luck good luck louis thank you for watching uh Mm -hmm. let us know how it goes if you figure it out i'd love to hear uh follow-up feedback okay so we've got one more feedback item today big segment uh for this episode i like it back on the subject of tapes this is from mr b hello i hope i'm not too late for this tech snap show i have a question regarding your previous show that would be 339 i've been thinking about tape drives for a long time I started considering tape drives about 15 years ago. As time passed, I thought that tapes were dying and and will soon die, so I'll have a problem with old, unsupported technology I didn't really want to invest in. In your last show, you presented that sales of tapes are still on the rise and that you still use tapes. I don't know anything about tapes or tape drives. Can you please tell me just some of the basics? Like, what technology for data storage, type of cartridges, tapes, drives, kind, sort, category, group, description, form, brand, tier, variety, character, subdivision, classification, grade, level, character, quality, class, kind, genre, breed, and, of course, species of tapes. Well, anything really that just might help me choose the right tapes for my home and my business. How do I get started? Of course, I have a second question. What do you think... Is it is it a good idea to use? To, is it a good idea to use ZFS for backup to tapes, or is it better to use rsync or some other backup program such as Bacula? Thank you. Best regards, Mr. B. All right. Well, this has this question has your name written all over it, Mr. Dan. I'm here. I'm here. Yes, you are. Uh,
1: so tapes nowadays, it, it, I would say the standard tape to use now is LTO linear tape open, uh, basically. It, comes in a cartridge, which I do not happen to have nearby. There are some over here in in the tape drive, but I can't show you one. But they're about that big. That's how big they are. And they're about that thick. So basically, they're about four inches square by about half an inch thick. And you look at it, and it doesn't really look like a tape, but you insert it in, and it opens up a flap. It grabs the end of the tape and spools it around another uh, reel. If you go on to the LTO uh, tape entry on Wikipedia, it shows you how it works. It's exceedingly clever. Uh, I also like DLT, but DLT seems to be phasing out in preference for LTO. How much? I think you can buy a good tape for about 40 bucks. Um, how much is a tape drive? That varies. All of my tape drives are used. Uh, They've been used and hopefully not abused and then given to me. Some of my tape drives I've just bought off the internet, used, and then tested them here again, often on used tapes. Um, You monitor the errors that come off it. And, you know, if all the tapes are bad on a tape drive, but they're good on another tape drive, toss out the bad tape drive. Um, you, you, You do have to be careful with tapes in that you don't, abuse them. Don't store them in the hot sun. Don't store them in your shed in the middle of winter. The basement and a nice, cool, dry environment where the temperature's pretty stable, that's, that's a pretty good place. Um, I like to have a tape drive big enough that it holds my entire full backup. It means I don't have to change tapes. Oh, that I do does have a actually tape. sound
0: pretty nice, yeah.
1: I do have a tape library. And a full backup used to take 10 tapes when I was on SDLT. Um, but nowadays, a tape is uh, uh, one LTO4 tape holds my entire backup, which is wow. probably about a terabyte.
0: That's awesome.
1: Uh, it is. It, it, it makes a trip to the secure and disclosed location much easier because it's only one tape instead of a <laughs> bag of tape.
0: Yeah, right. You just, okay, here's my tape, walk it over here. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Stick to. I, I would recommend sticking to LTO. I would recommend getting one of the older technologies if you can handle it because they're going to be cheaper. I was just looking, coincidentally, reading last night about uh, LTO eight, which has been announced or and will be released in in the final quarter of this year. But those drives, I believe, are starting at five thousand dollars. That's a bit beyond my. Capabilities, But if you can do it, do it. Uh, but I have a feeling that a lot of LTO5 and LTO6 and LTO4 tape drives are available on eBay at reasonable prices. And you buy one. If it doesn't work, you ask them for your money back or you toss it out. That's what I did with uh, a DLT 7000 drives. Um, now, as for tape media... I used to be of the view that, you know, any brand was okay. Uh, but like a lot of things, there are only a few manufacturers of a particular type of entity. And sometimes the tape drive you buy here under this brand is exactly the same tape as the one you buy under this brand. And I want in the show notes, there will be a link to... Um, a Bacula user's blog uh, email that came out just a few weeks ago or within the past couple of weeks. Let me see here. It's actually dated uh, October 2nd, so it's just under 10 days old. And it's by a guy that I knew when I lived in New Zealand. I think he now lives in England. Um, He's been in IT at least as long, if not longer, than I have. And I've often trusted his uh, advice when it came to backups. And basically he's saying, don't use Maxell LTO media. Um, Like Maxell no longer produce LTO media of any kind and have stopped doing so about two years old, but Maxwell media may be present in virtually any brand of LTO Altrium cartridge. And he sees below, and he talks about the reasons for this warning and uh, how the media's, seems to be destroying the drives. Um, So, I would read this. I have not tried to identify any of my media yet, but he gives instructions on how to go through and identify whether or not your cartridge actually has Maxell media. And I find that very interesting, what he's doing here. I really should find time to look at this. So, what i'm saying is buy reputable buy reputable brands store them safely and you should be okay
0: i think that's pretty good advice uh from a seasoned tape man himself awesome uh, yeah do let us know how that goes too because i'd be curious uh, if anyone else has some you know some some personal tape tips, uh, pointers to good tutorials about, you know, here's what you should do, here's utilities that work well, uh, etc.
1: Mm-hmm. Hey, send them our way and good luck to you, Mr. B. And if we've raised more questions than answers, send us a question. Send them send them right back.
0: It's a feedback loop. Yeah, that's how it works here on the TechSnap feedback segment. If you need to get in touch with us or just want to, jupiterbroadcastingcom slash contact TechSnap.reddit.com or find us both on twitter tons of ways to do it uh we're always looking forward to more feedback from you our wonderful audience stay tuned we'll be right back with the roundup all right well that's just about the end of our show but before we go we've got the roundup we didn't have time to cover these in depth but we wanted to bring them to your attention uh we're interested hopefully you will be too it's homework all of us first up over at macrumors.com apple releases mac os high sierra 10.13 supplemental update to fix apfs disk utility bug and a keychain vulnerability this sounds important dan
1: so uh high sierra 10.13 right now the macbook i'm using here is on uh sierra mac os sierra ten twelve point six. So I'm going to guess that this that the high Sierra 1013 is their beta version.
0: Uh, I think they just released it. maybe yeah. maybe it, so it isn't. Why beta. am I not on it yet? It may have, maybe so, it's a manual. I don't know. Yeah,
1: yeah. So uh, this the big thing is here. They're they've gone to APFS and APFS is just the cat's pajamas. Uh, it's much more ZFS.
0: Is that a good thing like to cats? Them. Like pajamas?
1: I'm not. Yeah, I'm not a cat are. owner, they so are. I'm not sure. Yeah, Cat's pajamas. Look it up. Sorry, I'll uh, stop derailing you. Go on, sir. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I thought it's fair enough to catch me up on that because yeah. So, uh, the the High Sierra issue that they were trying to deal with was that the Disk Utility um would actually leak the password when you went to 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 look at the details. It would say, "Oh, here's the uh, um." password uh, i'm sorry but uh, i'm actually showing it to you and um yeah it was a surprise and it, it got notified and they fixed it and now it's um gone so it's no longer a bug if you've upgraded so patch and you'll be fine
0: so right is it here that it was it was uh it was just it was just showing you the password
1: yep here it is there you go sorry yeah, that's rough. Oops.
0: Thankfully, it looks Oops. like uh, you know it was reported pretty quick. Apple seemed to have a very fast turnaround here to get that get that patched. Um, not a great not a great thing, but I-, I can imagine you know there's certainly been a lot of considering APFS was announced not even that long ago, uh, let alone used. I'm sure they're moving pretty quick. And I've also seen a lot of discussion that you did the Disk Utility app um, really could use some updates, and maybe uh, you know so maybe some focus more focus was spent on the back end of the file system and not yeah. enough here on the the front end UX.
1: And some anecdotal uh, recommendations. Uh, If you're using FileVault, turn it off before you upgrade, then turn it, then upgrade, then turn it back on. Uh, There was a friend who reported some problems with uh, going to APFS uh, when FileVault was enabled. It just basically trashed it or froze it or blocked it or something. So something to consider.
0: Yeah, most definitely. Okay, so staying on this uh, Apple bent, let's jump on over to our friends at the EFF mm-hmm. complaining about mm-hmm. iOS 11's misleading off-ish mm-hmm. setting for Bluetooth and Wi-Fi.
1: Who is EFF? You might wonder. EFF are the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Frontier Foundation, and they're a nonprofit, and they defend digital security, free speech, and innovation. That is something all of you should be behind. Amen. Send them some money. Send them some money. So what they say here is turning off your Bluetooth and Wi-Fi radios when you're not using them is good security practice, not to mention good for your battery. So you go ahead, you turn it off, and it should be off, right? Well, no, it's not actually off. What actually happens in iOS 11 when you toggle your quick settings to off is that the phone will disconnect from Wi-Fi networks and and some devices but remain on for Apple services. So location services... It location services is still enabled. Apple devices like Apple Watch and Pencil stay connected. And services such as Handoff and Instant Hotspot stay on. Apple's UI fails to even attempt to com- communicate these exceptions to its users. So basically, if you turn your Wi-Fi off on iOS, your iWatch will still be able to talk to it and use it. So... And there's more stuff. When you toggle these settings, in the control center was best described as offish. They don't say that way. The Wi-Fi will turn back full on if you drive or walk to a new location. And both Wi-Fi and Bluetooth will turn back on at 5 a.m. Wi-Fi a.m. I'm not sure. So the only way to turn off the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth uh, radios is to enable airplane mode or navigate into settings and go to the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth sections. So the quick off on your phone doesn't actually turn them off. Which I would think that they would turn them off.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of torn on that. I think Android actually already does something similar. Um, and mm-hmm. in the re- latest Android, they now have a you can turn Wi-Fi off, but you can enable it so that if you're at a location uh, that it's aware of or that you've configured, it will automatically turn Wi-Fi back on. Um,
1: and yep. we're talking about this page, the quick settings, right?
0: You can still uh, you can still disable it, like turn it all the way off uh, under under another
1: page uh, yeah under the settings page which is altogether different that's that's your quick settings that's what they're talking about
0: i'm kind of i've kind of torn on this because i can see the appeal um frequently mm-hmm. when i'm mm-hmm. leaving my apartment building in the morning i mm-hmm. walk through my hallway my wi-fi dies i'm trying to maybe i'm i'm catching a lift or trying mm-hmm. to send an important yep. email my wi-fi mm-hmm. isn't good enough my phone hasn't switched i know in the mm-hmm. past. Uh, ios had a i think it was called wi-fi boost but where they would when they detected that your wi-fi signal was low they would enable lte and start using that as well to try to to try to get your traffic out there either way so maybe Uh this is a sign that that wasn't working as well as it should have or or as was hoped um i can definitely see it being like yes i just bounced off it wasn't really off um and it would still come back later because i hate when i get to the office and i forget to turn my wi-fi on and then suddenly i'm paying for what i use again
1: What annoys me? uh, I like to listen to the radio as I'm walking out, Mm -hmm. and and you know how some radio stations will play a little ad when you first start listening. Yes,
0: Uh, so when you switch, you you like reconnect. You listen to
1: the ad, and as you're walking away, it reconnects on LTE, and then you hear the ad again. That's yep, yep, and that's really frustrating. And so, what I like to do is turn off Wi-Fi, like you said, just as I'm leaving. So it connects the LTA and I only hear the ad once. But like you said, I forget to turn it back on.
0: Yeah. That said, though, it is like it's, it's a non-obvious change. I'm not sure how well like we're hearing about it here from them. I don't know that I would have heard about it. Otherwise, I'm not sure how much like where it was documented, the change or how much publicity Apple gave it. So it, it does seem like it's, a, it's worse just in like it's no longer intuitive that if you were just like, oh, you've heard that you should be concerned about security. Oh, I'm trying to turn my Bluetooth off because I don't ever use Bluetooth. And if you haven't, really read through the details or are unaware you're less secure than you might think. And so that is uh unfortunate. I don't know what the best ways to strike this balance are or how to properly educate people so that you can kind of opt into it or enable it. Maybe it should be a feature you enable, uh but then there's always problems there too because that means 90% of people won't ever enable it. I don't know what the answer is, uh but I do appreciate EFF. They've got a great um even if you don't agree or don't always agree, they are very focused on you know internet rights freedoms liberties privacy all of those good things
1: and so I appreciate
0: I appreciate them having their position
1: so just interestingly I tried this and on the quick panel Wi-Fi is off but if I go into settings Wi-Fi is on
0: yeah there you go hmm it's
1: basically it's disconnected from my access point but wi-fi is still on yeah
0: and so maybe it'd be better if there was like a small you know like if it was a different symbol or if they had a you know it had a uh and, and maybe it is i don't i don't have an ios device so i can't get yeah. into the details of it
1: um i'll send you one question uh, i have a i have a spare one here it's just sitting on my desk not doing anything
0: <laughs> look at that wow
1: I have another one in the living room that's not doing anything. (laughs) They're just littered all over the place. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm I'm a flush in apples. Uh, That's pretty funny. Okay, well,
0: let's move on, get out of Apple territory now that we've had our fill, and move over to Discus. Um, Security alert, there's been a user info breach. Yikes.
1: This is not good. Another week, another security breach. This one is interesting. So yesterday on October 5th, we were alerted to a security breach that impacted the database in 2012. Now, that sounds sort of ambiguous. Was the database a 2012 copy or did this breach happen in 2012? While we were still investigating the incident, we believe that it's best to share the information we know. We know that a snapshot of our user database from 2012, including information dating back to 2017, was exposed. So it means it was a snapshot, not really clear when it happened. Um uh, so basically the timeline says October fifth, they were told uh they ex- they they got a copy of the exposed data and began to analyze it uh and they verified its validity and then on October sixth they started contacting users and resetting the passwords uh that they found in the breach. And then on October sixth they published this disclosure. So if you're a discus user, you better check this out. Um not really sure what was in it, but they're gonna—they're uh they're emailing all the users. Getting all seventeen point five million emails out will take us a few days. It's yeah!
0: A, wow, that's a so lot, lot of emails. That was five days ago.
1: Yeah, seventeen point five million. So I would like to hear more information about how this snapshot was exposed.
0: Yeah! Yeah! Definitely. Um, hopefully hopefully we'll see a more detailed write up after after everything's all fixed people 17. notified 17.5 million. yeah and it's um you know discus is it's pretty it's pretty wisely widely used and deployed so there's a lot of uh, clearly a lot of people with accounts and actively using it
1: uh, for those that aren't familiar with discus uh, yeah, discus provides a way for say website owners to provide a discussion mechanism. And you sign into Discus, you get an account on Discus, and then you're able to use that login to comment on various websites. Is that is that how it works? Do you? Yeah. It's a third party tool that allows website owners to provide a discussion forum.
0: Yeah, exactly. Without you having to, you know, have manage all the software for it, uh, have a database of your comments. Uh, I think I see it a lot on like static web pages or other simple yep. web pages so that you don't mm-hmm. have to have all that complexity. Mm-hmm.
1: I wish it had been around when I started.
0: Yeah, yeah, it definitely makes things easier. I think that's why it's popular. Um, Okay, so moving on to maybe better news. U.S. lawmakers want to restrict Internet surveillance on Americans. Am I reading that right? They're not saying they want to increase it? I'm confused.
1: Yeah, it's it's a bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers unveiled security on Wednesday, Wednesday being... Ooh, relative to October fourth, that would overhaul various aspects of the NSA's warrantless internet surveillance program in order to, in an effort to install additional privacy protections. Doesn't that so just sound bad? Warrantless internet surveillance sound, program. Sound, yeah. <laughs> so basically, it allows uh, th- this feature allows the NSA to snoop on communications of foreign nationals, but where it gets sort of foggy is where the foreign national is in communication with a US citizen. Right. And what they're trying to do here is partially restrict the FBI's ability to access American data collected under Section 702 by requiring the agency to obtain a warrant when seeking evidence of a crime. Now to me that sounds exceedingly um fair. I was trying to think of another word, but, you know, we've got this information, but in order for you to access it, you need a warrant. That sounds reasonable.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely think that that sounds reasonable. Uh, It seems kind of like a, a common sense here, you know, to, okay, well, if you if you need access to the data that we've gained mm-hmm. in, in other ways for other reasons or just accidentally yeah. scooped up, okay, but, like, let's verify these are, yeah. these are American people with, with rights and liberties to protect. Go through the process. If you can convince a judge that this is justified, then there you yeah. go.
1: So that limit would not apply, however, to requests of data that involve counterterrorism. The narrower restriction on what some have called a backdoor search loophole has disappointed some civil liberties groups. Several organizations sent a letter this week saying that they would not support legislation that did not require a warrant for all queries of American data collected under Section 702. Wow. And then there's also also the risk that uh, it would renew the program for another six years. And then that codification would end in six years, meaning NSA could potentially resume the activity in 2023. So this sounds good. But as always, bills are big. You got to read it all. And very few people read them all.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. There's a lot of things that go in. We know there's writers and things that get snuck in all the time. But... Even with all the limitations, it's nice to see at least a little forward progress. As always, it's kind of a calculus to decide, like, well, okay, is it worth it without those, you know, even with those loopholes? Does this mean we'll never get those loopholes closed because we've made this mm-hmm. compromise? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But even just starting down this path of imposing more having and having politicians feel like it's in their interest to protect the privacy of the public, I think mm-hmm. that, that attitude, more so than the specifics here, is hopefully a win. <laughs> All right. So, on that maybe happy news, we've got one last item in today's roundup over at one of our favorites, Project Zero. They sure do a lot of good work over at Google GoogleProjectZero.blogspot.com. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's where you can find this stuff. Here they're talking about using binary diffing to discover Windows kernel memory disclosure bugs. Yep,
1: And the zero in Project Zero refers to zero days. and. What they're talking about is, it's fairly common practice when a uh, security vulnerability is patched and then announced to go and look at the patch. You go and look at the patch and find out more information about the vulnerability because sometimes the uh, announcement is sort of vague about what's going on and it's just fixed. So, security research will go and and research the patch to find out what the issue was, and then sometimes look at other areas of the code or look at other systems that may have the same uh, vulnerability. But what they're talking about here is looking at diffs, looking at binaries that come out with a patch to non-open source projects, in this case, Windows. So a patch has been announced, here's the new binary, or here's a patch to your existing binary, and you apply it. And what they're using here is a tool that they use to diff the old binary with the new binary, and then uh, reverse engineer what the patch was, which is very clever. So they're doing at a machine uh, at an assembly language level or a C C language level. It's not actually C though, is it? Because by that time it's compiled code which is assembly or might be microcode. But anyway, right. the the reverse engineering the binaries to come up with the code, to see what the patch was, to find out what the actual vulnerability was. And this is very clever. Yeah. I f- and, i like this
0: and thankfully in this case it's it's good guys doing it right especially in this case since they patched 10 but but not older versions um mm-hmm. but it's also a technique used by malicious actors as well you know especially in this case like okay well I'm we can sure go that, figure it out yeah. then we're gonna go use this on the older unpatched versions
1: yeah i'm sure they were already doing that yeah right yeah so exactly that, and the aim of this blog post was to illustrate that security revel, rev, relevant differences in concurrently supported branches of a single product may be used by malicious actors to pinpoint significant weaknesses or just regular bugs in the more dated versions of said software so basically if you're going to patch something patch it all yeah. don't don't no don't don't leave your customers unpatched
0: yeah, exactly. Um,
1: and I guess I guess they're trying to say only some versions are supported, but I do still have a Windows NT box. <laughs>
0: Shh, don't air your dirty laundry on the show, Dan.
1: Sorry, sorry.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, on that bit of news, that's it for today's roundup. And that's it for today's episode. Dan, do you have any parting words before we get out of here?
1: I do have a—did I tell you about a Twitter account I had called Dan's Dirty Laundry? No, you did not. Years ago, when I first moved into this place, I had a the laundry was two floors down, so I needed a video camera to know when the laundry was done. I just created a Twitter account and broadcast the camera live, and everyone could watch my laundry get washed. Dan's Dan's laundry or <laughs> Dan's amazing. dirty laundry is still a Twitter account out there, and it it gets some hits every once in a while, and I still. Tweet from it, but not very often.
0: That is beautiful. I will have to go follow. Uh, you all should too, and I'll look forward to the next time you update it. In any case, thank you all for joining us for today's Tech Snap episode. We really appreciate each and every one of you. If you've got some feedback, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact or techsnap.reddit.com While you're on jupiterbroadcasting.com, you'll find a ton of great things. There's the archive of this show, the previous incarnation, and a whole bunch of of other great shows go check out user error coder radio or ask noah he's been killing it over there um tons of great stuff you can watch live you can join the irc room find out more information about the the hosts the network check out the latest stuff on jupiter colony's twitter feed jb social media in general all kinds of good things if you want to find more of us we're both on twitter i'm at Wes Payne. he's at @TechSnap_Dan. underscore dan make sure you come back next week join us here for the TechSnap program we'll see you then i <laughs> of